I'm Grigori Carpin from Simply Creative People, the podcast where we discuss GOIs, canons, and stories from the SCP Wiki. And we try to recommend things for all fans of the Wiki, new and old. Look for us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Visit the show page at anchor.fm slash simply-creative-people. Or follow us on Twitter at S-I-M-C-R-E-A-T. I'm Kelsey. I'm Cassie. And I'm Nolan from SCP Weekly. We bring you news from on-site and off-site. And we share your love for the creative community that surrounds the SCP Wiki. Join us on Tuesdays for new episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube at SCP Weekly. The file you are about to hear has been thoroughly scrutinized by the Ethics Committee and approved by the O5 Council for release to trusted associates of the Foundation. This is SCP Unredacted. Mayford, Tennessee is a shithole town. I would know, because my family and I used to live there. It's miles away from any of the nearest towns. Most of the residents are as bigoted as you'd expect a rural town to be. The roads are full of potholes, none of which have been fixed, and the only interesting landmarks are the post office and part of the subject of this post, St. Christopher's Mental Institution. It used to be called St. Christopher's Insane Asylum, but they were forced to change it after the state government got on their ass in 2008. It was situated on a large hill overlooking the rest of the town, surrounded by a tall spiked fence and gate. It was constructed in 1901, and you could tell. One of the most entertaining things you could do in Mayford was bet with the other locals how many bricks or tiles would fall off this time. But I'm not here to tell you about the structural failings of the building or how the place was finally shut down in 2020 due to grossly unethical medical practices, though our subject does have a part in it. I'm here to talk about the escape artist of St. Christopher's. I'm not going to mythologize him, like most people who know about Mayford do. I'm going to tell you the facts as I know them. Thomas Jan Yaltz was born to Sophia and Jason Yaltz on Wednesday, January 1, 1997. Descendants of Polish immigrants, their surname is an anglicizing of Yelas. The Yaltzes lived an uneventful life until a rabies scare happened with three-year-old Thomas. While he didn't contract it, it still left him with a high fever that left him bedridden for a week. He would make a full recovery. But after that day, something seemed to irrevocably change with Thomas. What used to be a quiet boy who tended to blend into the background, according to his teachers, all of a sudden became both talkative and imaginative. It can be said that the roots of his reputation as an escape artist really began when Thomas was six years old. His teachers reported that he had not returned to class after asking to go to the bathroom. It was only when after the school was searched top to bottom, that they heard crying from the rooftop. Up there, hyperventilating and trying to jiggle the roof access door's knob to no success, was Thomas. Questioned repeatedly by his teachers, his parents, and the police, Thomas was consistent with his account throughout. 
He had been about to leave the bathroom after washing his hands when the room changed. It looked like his school's bathroom, but something was wrong, and the me in the mirror wasn't copying me. Suddenly, his reflection began climbing out of the mirror and began chasing him. He said he only wanted to play with me, Thomas would recount, but I didn't like his smiling, so I ran. I ran as fast as I could. The entire school was empty, according to him, as he went from classroom to classroom away from his reflection. The floors were dirty, all of the windows and doors were open, and the air outside was hot and smelled like wet dog as he finally decided to run upstairs to the roof and call for help from a grown-up. The reflection, he claimed, started sprinting towards him once he reached the roof access door and he was only barely able to slam the door shut on it. Pressing his back against the door as hard as he could, he could hear it scratching on it like a cat and spewing profanities at him. Suddenly, however, the air became clear again and the scratching stopped, and he was stuck on the roof with no way to get down. That was what led up to him crying up there, or so he claims. Now, like me, you're probably dismissing his tale as the overactive imagination of a terrified kindergartner, trying to come up with a lie that would get him out of trouble, but there's two things of note. One, Thomas continued to stay adamant about his version of events, even through the timeouts and groundings he subsequently endured. Two, the roof's door was locked from the inside. No one could come up with an explanation of how he could even get up there without either being seen or seriously hurt. Of course, this would not be the last time that Thomas Yaltz would come up with an extravagant tale to explain his disappearances. In fact, they seemed to increase in frequency the older he got, according to documents. From when he claimed that his disappearing during a camping trip when he was seven years old was because a mermaid made me come to the lake and took me to an underwater city, to him being treated as a runaway teen when he was 17 years old and vanished from home, only to be found shaking and shivering in his father's closet two weeks later, muttering about too many spiders. The final straw, however, was when Thomas was 18 years old and he disappeared during a relative's funeral, only to be found back at home almost five hours away from the proceedings. No one was able to explain how he'd gotten there before his parents, when walking home would require an eight-hour trek across a highway and multiple interstates, or how he'd even gotten in when the front and back doors were locked and bolted and the windows didn't open. This time, no one even bothered to listen to Thomas's fantastical explanation for how he'd gotten there, and the police would drag him, kicking and screaming, into St. Christopher's mental institution to be committed for schizophrenia. Of course, after St. Christopher's was shut down, this would be heavily scrutinized by mental health professionals, and would be called bullshit not just because there was no history of it in Thomas's family, not only was it at odds with his prior mental health checkups, but also because the paper diagnosing him was not reviewed by peers or supervisors, just rubber-stamped before the ink even dried. Thus begins Thomas Yaltz's time while institutionalized. 
The first month of Thomas's institutionalization, or to be described more accurately, incarceration, was uneventful, but no less horrifying. He was placed in a locked room with no windows, and not just orderlies, but security cameras placed in front of the door at all times. He was to be straightjacketed unless he ate with the other patients or he needed to use the facilities. He was not allowed outside by any means. He was called all manner of ableist slurs by the staff, which I will not be repeating here due to site rules, and all mail sent to him by his family was intercepted and thrown into the building's furnace. Thomas grew thinner and more withdrawn the longer he was kept like this, refusing to eat too much food and barely speaking a word to anyone who said anything to him. It got to the point where they needed to get a tighter straitjacket because his normal one was becoming too big for him. And then, one day, he vanished, or rather, escaped. No one was able to figure out how he'd done it. There was no way in or out of that room except the door, and that opened only when the orderlies were mandated to let him out. No security cameras caught him coming out of the building either. It was just one moment he was in his room, the next he was gone. He wouldn't stay gone for long, however. The sheriff of Mayford and police forces would find Thomas in his family's home, hugging his mother tight and crying. They had to physically restrain her from fighting the officers, who proceeded to beat her with their batons while he was dragged back into his prison. Security was tightened. An orderly would stay in his room until midnight. More security cameras were placed inside and outside of the institution, and now he could only eat from a slot in his door, the orderly having to feed him themselves because Thomas was now straitjacketed at all times. But miraculously, he somehow managed to escape again. It was during the morning security check one day when they found that Thomas was not in his room. This time, the entire police force combed the decrepit institution from top to bottom, detaining other patients, sometimes read always violently. But once again, no one could find him or fathom how he'd done it. Despite the deplorably brutal measures the pigs inflicted on the Yaltz family, they were adamant about not having any physical contact with Thomas since he was reinstitutionalized. A bulletin was sent to all other police stations in the Tennessee area, fabricating that Thomas was armed, mentally unstable, and extremely dangerous, and wanted posters were plastered across the state. It would be three months before Thomas would be spotted again, eating at an Arby's in Memphis. Their police force swiftly barged into the restaurant, slamming him against the table and battering him with their steel batons until bruises could be seen on his body, before cuffing him and throwing him into a squad car to be kept in a jail cell until Mayford's cops could haul him back. It just kept happening. No matter how much security was tightened around him, and no matter how rough the interrogations got, or how much food was deprived from him, Thomas never, ever said a word on how he'd escaped or where he'd gone. By the time the most stringent measures were put in place, strapped to his bed, fed intravenously, and watched by an entire team of orderlies 24-7, 
Thomas Jan Yaltz had become something of a legend amongst the other patients of St. Christopher's Mental Institution. Whether it had been out of envy, admiration, or perhaps both at the same time, Thomas was all the patients would talk about during meal periods, until the staff, predictably, cracked down on such nonsense, threatening electroconvulsive therapy on anyone who even alluded to his name. After that, things seemed to have finally quieted down with St. Christopher's problem patient. Until the breakout happened, that is. You've probably heard the story. The report on it by Stuart Milan put him and Mayford as a whole on the map. For those of you that haven't, however, I'll summarize what happened. On the night of February 1st, 2020, just before dinner time ended, masked men in brown suits and wielding firearms breached the front door of St. Christopher's, firing warning shots into the air and causing the patients to scramble into a panic. However, these men ignored them, instead making their way toward the corridor that Thomas was kept in. Any staff that attempted to stop them were fired upon by rubber bullets that knocked them unconscious. The door to Thomas's room was rammed until the hinges gave way, the men subduing the orderlies promptly before freeing Thomas from his constraints. According to the patients that were brave enough to witness this event, Thomas Yaltz was a husk of his former self. His cheeks were sunken in, his ribs could be seen through his chest, and he didn't even stir as the men carried him out from the building before slamming the door shut. That was the last time Thomas Yaltz was seen alive. No one knew who these men were, what they wanted with Thomas Yaltz, where they took him, or what they did with him. For everyone involved, however, it was like one last escape from his prison. The Tennessee state government came down like a hammer on Mayford after that day. St. Christopher's was indicted with lawsuit after lawsuit by transferred or released patients for institutional abuse, bigotry, medical torture, forced conversions, you name it. Unable to pay the hundreds of millions of dollars slammed against them, the mental institution was forcibly shut down on March 15, 2020. The building was demolished to the ground the following year. From what I've heard, they're planning on converting it into a memorial site. Mayford's police force was gutted like a fish, the entire branch shut down, and authorities subsumed by the nearby county of Irwin. The Yaltzes moved out of Mayford less than a day after the institution was shut down to live a quiet and private life elsewhere. Thomas Yaltz was declared legally dead in 2023. Was Thomas Yaltz really telling the truth whenever he told people what sounded like fibs? How did he escape from such seemingly airtight security measures? And where is he now? I, unfortunately, cannot answer that. It goes beyond the boundary of facts that I swore to tell and into speculation. I will, however, leave everyone off with an anecdote from a relative of mine. Yes, my aunt was among those forcibly institutionalized by that pig-headed sheriff and those loathsome doctors. She's back at home now with me and the rest of my caring family, having endured the shocks, the therapy sessions, and all attempts to crush her spirits in what made my aunt my aunt. 
She'd always been a little different than other people. She calls it being in tune with my mystical side. Whatever it is, she witnessed the beginning and end of the breakout of Thomas Yaltz. However, please take her words with as many or as few grains of salt as you wish. It weren't vigilantes or mercenaries or whatever codswallop that plagiarizing hack Mylan tried to explain them as that got Tommy out of that hell. It was mystics, just like him and I. Oh, they must have put up some kind of glamour to make it look like they were carrying guns and whatnot, but they didn't fool me. I could see their robes, their spells they cast on those bastard staff, hear the words they spoke in another tongue as they left. Wherever they took poor old Tommy. I hope he's in a better place now. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, join my Discord community, hire me on Fiverr, or help support me by becoming a patron for as little as $3 a month. Regardless of tier, all patrons get early access to every single episode. The links are in the description. I don't have the talent it takes to write a skip. All I do is read. Original authors make this podcast possible. So, credit to the original author. Their link's in the description. Show them some love as well. Consider becoming a member of the SCP Wiki. Upvote their work and maybe write a skip of your own. Maybe I'll read it here someday. You never know if you never try. The content of this podcast and content relating to the SCP Foundation, including the SCP Foundation logo, is licensed under Creative Commons ShareLight 3.0, and all concepts originate from scpwiki.com and its authors. This recording being derived from this content is hereby also released under Creative Commons ShareLike 3.0. Hey there, this is DJ Skip, host of Foundation After Midnight Radio, coming to you from the only third shift broadcast for personnel by personnel. Be sure to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts to not miss out on containment news and community announcements from within the Foundation.